The Boys of Tech with Edwin Herman and Brett King. Thank you very much and welcome to episode 67 of the Boys of Tech for Monday the 24th of May 2010. My name is Edwin Herbin, my co-host is Brett King, welcome on board. Hello. Uh, We're also joined by Cameron Colley who was I think a guest on episode 64, is that right Cameron? Uh, Yeah that was it, yeah. So you're now, uh, I guess you're on on the panel now. I am. I'm 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 a regular. Unofficially (laughs) our Australian correspondent. That's it. That's it. I also want to welcome Kate Carruthers. Hi. Hi, Kate. Girl on Boys of Tech. I take it. You are the you're the first girl on the Boys of Tech. Yeah. So I I apologise now for our name. And uh, I'm going to just uh, kick off with a story that you might recall last week. We talked about an error in the Oxford English Dictionary that went unnoticed for 99 years, and until recently, that is, when it caught the eye of a physics lecturer from Australia. So this week, the man himself joins us on the show, Dr. Stephen Hughes from Queensland University of Technology. Welcome along. Hi. Stephen, I understand that uh, you spotted an error, that the, an error in the dictionary that effectively stated that a siphon works by atmospheric pressure, and you say that's incorrect. So tell us, how how does a siphon work then, if it's not? Well, it's definitely gravity. You've got uh, gravity actually, well, obviously affecting the whole siphon, but you've got a longer arm, descending arm of a siphon, and you've got a, a shorter upper arm, which is immersed in fluid. And what happens, it's the weight of the fluid in the in the longer arm, which actually pulls pulls the fluid down, the liquid down, water, whatever, petrol, and pulls the, the liquid up over the top part of the siphon or the crown. So really it's, 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 it's gravity which is a driving force behind a siphon. So there's, there's nothing to do at all with uh, atmospheric pressure? Only, only very slightly. Not, um, it's not, it's not as essential. Um, atmospheric pressure has a role, for example, in, in siphoning water, and it makes it more difficult for the the water to break apart due to gas bubbles forming. That's that's really uh, that, that's what what happens. So what it does, it it tends to uh, hold the water together into into a cohesive column. But it's not actually essential for the working uh, of a siphon. People have demonstrated uh, mercury siphons working in in vacuums, for example. So I guess the atmospheric pressure would would determine what the maximum height for a siphon. Um, no, well, not necessarily. No, people have done studies, though admittedly probably more work needs to be done, where um, siphons have actually um, gone higher than what you would think due to atmospheric pressure. For example, I've read a report someone actually got a mercury siphon to work at twice the, the height you'd expect, so double 760 um, uh, millimetres, yeah, 1.5 metres, so that's, that's twice what you expect from atmospheric pressure. You know, something that struck me uh, when I first read the story last week, since then I've been mulling this over, is it possible to run a siphon in the presence of gravity but in the absence of, of an atmosphere, in a vacuum? Yeah. yeah, well, people have reported that, yes. Yeah. So you, you can, it can be done? Mm. 
So that obviously that's clear right. that's that in itself is evidence that it has nothing to do with atmospheric pressure. Well, it does, yes. Although I think, in view of the, there's been a sort of a, I suppose a worldwide furor about this. In fact, the other day someone sent me a report. They're talking now about the, the siphon walls, the siphon walls, <laughs> and someone said it's pistols at dawn. But my response was, well, at least we're using water pistols, so it's quite. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I, I did wonder, actually, was I kind of half expected that in the absence of an atmosphere, so say in a vacuum, but with gravity, mm. yeah. just imagine you have one vessel uh, that's full and slightly elevated, and next to it, on the right, another vessel, yeah. lower down, and a yeah. tube connecting the two, yeah. in your typical sy- siphon scenario. Now, let's yeah. say the tube is full of water. We've, we've filled it, you know, it's almost in its going state, yeah. or it is in its going state. What I would have expected is that in a vacuum, the water in the long leg would go down as it, yeah. as it does normally, yeah. but yeah. the water in the short leg would go back down into the full vessel and uh, uh, kind of splitting the water into two. Yeah, well, you, do that? You, What's going to fill the gap in the middle? Edward? But you don't need to because you've got a vacuum all around. I think what, what it is, um, I mean, what, what I was, what, I, I wrote this um, paper on it, and this is after you know quite a bit of research looking at what, People have done in in the past, you know, going back a long a long time, and what um, seems to be the case is that liquids, including water, do have something called a tensile strength. In other words, they can actually take a negative pressure. In fact, this does actually um, have an impact on on everyday life. Uh, some of you may have heard of something called cavitation, where you get uh, what happens in cavitation, and it can happen in the oceans where ships going along. And it can happen because of the, the motion of the screw through the water. What it can actually do is actually rip water apart. And basically, you've got a vacuum. So the actual water, in the internal structure of water is actually ripped apart. And gas comes out of solution, goes into that bubble. So you've got gas. And then, of course, because of the, the high tension, what happens is the putting elastic band are letting go. And the water comes back and compresses the air to, to, to such uh, high temperatures, you actually get flashes of light uh, occurring. So I think that in itself indicates it's actually difficult to sort of prise water water apart. So in other words, it can actually take um, a negative pressure. People actually done, this may seem strange, but research on uh, octopuses, but they're suckers, how so they can actually generate significant negative pressure on surfaces by pulling, so actually sort of stretching the, uh, the, the water. Wow, and I thought I was beginning to understand this. <laughs> mm. So what it is, there is this, um, this kind of cohesiveness between the, um, the water. So my, my contention is, and, 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 and again, in, in a sense, I have been surprised because I haven't actually, well, to, in my opinion, haven't really done anything sort of earth-shatteringly new. It's something which has been, it's been done in the past. So maybe I'm the first to, uh, in recent times, to actually... I suppose, start a bit of a personal campaign to try and get the dictionaries changed. People have, have mentioned this. I read a paper in 1971 saying that this was a problem, and, and uh, that's what inspired me to actually do this. And, and maybe, because you, you, this is the internet show, this is a story about the internet. Maybe now, because we've got the internet, it means these stories can go all over the world. And um, there's been blogs where people have been um, discussing this. My hope is that this will actually get the dictionaries to change and also, I think, get people to be able to use the principles 
of the siphon. In fact, a very, very encouraging email from someone in the New South Wales government who trains the SES crews, and he said that when he, he read my article, or because the actual um, article itself is up on the internet for people to look at on the university e-print site. Yeah, I've downloaded and, that and read that, actually. Very interesting. Yeah, and he said he, it suddenly clicked with him. He said the fact that dictionaries said it was atmospheric pressure actually prevented him from properly understanding how a siphon worked. And so he's now going to use this knowledge he's gained in training the SES crews for actually being able to drain floodwaters more effectively. And um, I know people are probably upset, um, people saying this, but I, I think the actual, the, the idea of the atmosphere being involved as a motive force rather than in a supporting role uh, actually leads to incorrect predictions about how a siphon works. And then when you, when you use what's called a gravity, what I call a gravity model or tensile model, then it does lead to useful uh, predictions like the heart of water above the siphon doesn't actually affect the flow. It's got kind of a constant flow. Uh, and also another critical thing, which um, this person from the New South Wales SES mentioned to me, is this idea that because it's gravity, that means the flow of water out from the bottom of the siphon is dependent on the difference between the height of the inlet and the outlet, which is called the siphon height. So that, I think that's, well, once you understand that, it means you can effectively use a, a, a siphon. Well, just to take that further, and as you said in your paper, if, mm. if you were trying to look at atmospheric pressures, if anything, it would go the other way because yeah. you've, you've got, at least on Earth anyway, uh, you've got, you know, in the presence of an atmosphere, you've got yeah, a higher right. atmospheric pressure in the vessel below. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, um, if anything, it would it would have the opposite effect. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I mean, I have um, because uh, when I I sort of was doing this research, I'd actually never come across this idea of the atmosphere being involved. I always understood it as being uh, being being gravity. Um, but people have got this idea. But since with, with this um this uh, discussion, which has been going on the last two weeks, it's actually uh, I think clarified. Uh, what I call the misconception, and what others would say is the actual truth of the operation of a siphon. And if I just run it past you, what, what people are, are are saying is that, okay, we admit that gravity is involved, but it's only half involved. So gravity pulls the liquid down, um, down the longer side, but creates a kind of a vacuum, which I find difficult to understand, but kind of a vacuum effect, so we call it, at the top of the siphon. And because nature abhors a vacuum, you need the atmosphere to actually push water into the bottom of the siphon up into that into that vacuum. So that, that's, hopefully I've, I haven't sort of misconceived a misconception. But as far as I can see, we've now really got two, two camps. We've got the atmospheric camp, taking that view I've just mentioned, and then there's the, the tensile camp, uh, which I um, subscribe to. And, and the way you explain that the water molecules in the vessel that's full uh, get, if you like, coerced to go through the tube is by, by way of hydrogen bonds between the water molecules, if, yeah, if it's yeah, water I, we're talking about. Yeah, that, 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 that's right, yeah. yeah that, that's um, uh, maybe, you know, with hindsight, I, I could have made things clear in a paper. Um, all, all liquids do have bonds. That's why they're liquids. Uh, otherwise, if they, if they didn't, they would just float off into space and become gases. Right. So there is a, there is a, a cohesion. In fact, um, liquids are far more solid than, than people think. They're sort of nearly solid. It's just they've got a few spaces um, or not quite so tightly bound as a solid so that the, the molecules can slide 
across each other. But you're quite right. There's um, water is very unusual. It does have this extra um, strength. Um, that's why it's got high surface tension compared to other uh, liquids like petrol. But they do have they do have bonds as well. They're called Van, van der Waals forces if it's uh, not hydrogen bonds. Uh, Stephen, I just noticed that the, the Wikipedia entry for the definition of siphon actually refers to uh, you know the resulting flow is driven by the force of gravity. Yeah, that's right. Is it, is it important? Is that something you, you you did yourself, or is it, is it important that the that the Oxford uh, Dictionary takes note and it amends it? Or my feeling that it um, yeah it is because uh, personally I I think it is you know, it's fundamentally wrong to say that it is the the atmosphere. I mean, it definitely is. Um, it is gravity, and I, I think at first I thought maybe it was just a matter of semantics because I suppose I was a bit of a sticker, I suppose, and just thought, yeah, you know, it's important that um, we get this right. But I've now discovered that it could be useful around the world for people to actually know about this, especially in view of climate change. Where I mean, maybe people can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it means that there's going to be you know, more extreme weather and so more flooding as well as increased drought, which we've certainly had here in Australia. And so that the, you can, if you understand the siphon, I don't think it's a difficult thing to understand. If I've just been writing a paper describing more, more experiments that people can do, and all you need is a bucket and a plastic tube. In fact, that original research, uh, I think some people have complained, you know, why, why do sort of academics spend their time doing this? That original research, do you know how much it cost? Under $10. It, it's two, it was two buckets from a hardware store between the train station and a university and a chain from a local bunning store. That's all this <laughs> Australia. That's it. It's under ten bucks. Yeah. Um, so my, my next paper describes experiments which I think actually do demonstrate that it definitely is tensile strength, which operates in a siphon um, that anyone can do from Chicago to Calcutta in their backyard, as long as you've got a bucket and a, a plastic tube, preferably a clear plastic tube, so you can actually see what's going on inside, uh, and some water. You can use sea water if you haven't got fresh water. And you can do these experiments. It's not sort of um, uh, big buck um, science at all. And Neil Armstrong could do this one on the moon. I think so. Yeah, it's a pity they're not up there now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we could ask them. <laughs> In fact, NASA have got a giant um, vacuum chamber. It's a it's cathedral size. It's it's enough to get the new. Uh, uh, moon spacecraft in, so it'd be interesting if someone could try it. I've got some equipment at work as well to do some more experiments um, on, on this. So I have to ask you, Stephen, you're, you're a senior lecturer in physics at Queensland yeah. University of Technology. Yeah. How did you stumble across this error in the dictionary? I mean, what were you well, doing looking up the uh, definition of siphon? I mean, you yeah, already know well, what it is. <laughs> I mean, just to be clear, I mean, I, I don't spend all my time leafing through dictionaries looking for um, problems. Some people might, might do that, but I, I don't. I do. I do. You do? Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think people are doing it more um, uh, doing it more now that this issue is being raised because um, people sent me emails about other problems, like with electricity is wrong and uh, things like that. Um, but it's, it, actually, the story goes back to the beginning of 2009, where I was staying. My wife's family are from South Australia, and most of them in a, a region called Wakeree, which is in the Riverland of South Australia. It's about 200 kilometres uh, to the east of Adelaide or the northeast uh, along the Murray River. And my one day my brother-in-law told me about this huge siphon they were using to partially refill a lake in the area called Lake Bonnie. And just to give people a background, what's happening, there's um, been a you know, pretty serious drought in South Australia over the last several years and 
the water level has been descending in the Murray, and there was even a danger at one time that the pipes for the water, the Adelaide water supply, were actually going to go above the river, so they need to keep the, le the level up. And what they did, they cut off the low-lying areas connected to the river by these barriers or banks, and they put a bank between a creek called Chambers Creek, which connects the Murray River, and Lake Bonney, um, which is quite a large lake in South Australia. And what happened, of course, the water started going down over a course of several months. It fell by 1.3 metres and the fish started to die. And so the government did a deal with whoever they do deals with to put 10 gigalitres back into the lake. And that's about 4,000 Olympic swimming pools worth of water. And so they did that and they, they used this siphon. It was 16 200-millimetre diameter uh, poly pipe, which went into the creek up over this barrier about a metre high and then down into the lake. And this actually ran for 50 days. So no... No pumping or diesel motors required. It's all running off, off gravity. And my brother-in-law told me about that the fishermen initially were getting four tonnes of fish out from where this siphon enters the lake, because all the nutrients oxygen. And they were taking the fish off you know, the Murray uh, carp for, for fertiliser. So I thought, wow, this is going to make a really good example of a siphon for educational purposes. I like sort of thinking about new um, things or new ways of explaining things to the students. So I... I, I shot there, and, and fortunately, I got there January the 20th, 2009, which is the day before they stopped it. So I took a video clip, and that's a video clip you may have seen on their web, and photographs as well of this. And when I got back to Brisbane, I started writing a paper for the Institute of Physics Journal, Physics Education. That's a British, um, uh, it's a, the main publisher of physics journals in, um, in, in the UK. And so what I did, I, I wrote the paper but in the course of actually writing the paper, I researched papers about experiments that people had done in the past, and in one in particular, 1971. And they say in that paper that there's currently a problem, currently, um, as in 1971, a problem with the definition of a siphon in dictionaries and also many school textbooks as well. And at the time, I thought, well, this is 1971, it's, it's nearly 40 years ago, so yeah, maybe the problem's gone now. In fact, at first, I wasn't even going to bother you know, checking the dictionaries. And one day at home, I just thought, oh, just for the record, I better just kind of check. So, I mean, the paper wasn't about this. It was about this, this siphon. Anyway, I was absolutely stunned when I, I opened the Oxford English Dictionary and read what I did. I was just shouting out, no, you know, how, how can this be? And this is like um, you know, a recent, recent dictionary. I thought, yeah, I, I was literally kind of, I, I just sort of stood there frozen frozen to the spot, I, I, just, uh, I really was quite, I was quite shocked. And back at the uni, I went into the library and I went right through the entire shelf of, of dictionaries, took quite a long time, and I didn't find a single example of a, of, of a correct definition, nothing. So I actually, at the end of the row, I was standing there, I just thought to myself, is there any dictionary anywhere which does have the, the correct explanation? Then I went online and went through about 25 online dictionaries, every single one wrong. But I did discover that Botanica is, is correct and actually mentions that the idea of the atmosphere pushing the water through is wrong. Um, so Yay! That, that, <laughs> Go Botanica! Uh, yes, yeah, so that was interesting. And at the time, Wiki wasn't, shall we say, that correct on it. it has, it's definitely improved over the last year. Uh, do, you know, do you know who updated that? Did you update I that yourself? Or? No, someone has put my paper on it, but I didn't right. actually do that. Yeah, so I sent the paper off for um, for review because it's, this is a, a you know peer review journal. Because um, what I did, I didn't when I discovered this, I didn't want to just immediately 
you know, challenge all the dictionaries. So what I'll do, I'll, I'll do the re proper research first, research uh, everything, do the experiments, and actually send, a, send the paper to a peer-reviewed journal. So I, I did that, uh, and then the reviewer back, came back and said, maybe you better don't concentrate so much on the actual siphon itself, or, or put that information in, in a supplementary file, which it is, and actually concentrate on this misconception. And so that, that's, what I, that, that's what I did. Well, it's, so, it's particularly important these days because dictionaries are online now. I mean, at, at work, we've, we've got yeah. uh, Oxford English Dictionary online. We, I use that all the time. Yeah. yeah. And uh, th I mean, this, is, this does have implications. I, I think I, so, yeah, yeah. I noticed also in your paper, you, you mentioned that you're interested to find out, uh, you've just talked a little bit now about it, but you've, you, you yeah. mentioned you're yeah. interested about other languages. Yeah, if it's any right. help... Um, I managed to, uh, with the help of my mother, who speaks six different languages, wow. managed to consult two dictionaries, a German one and a French one. Yeah, the yeah. German one, I don't know if I can pronounce that, Varig Deutsches Wartebuch. There, that'll do. That's as far okay. as my German goes. I've got the yeah. ISBN number, actually. It's 35771044465. Okay. Yeah. And that, that states it's pressure, so that's incorrect. However, the French one, yeah. Uh, which is Le Dictionnaire Hachette Encyclopédique yeah. from 1997. Le Siphon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, it states it's uh, gravity. Or le, oh, le, okay. That's le, the first correct one that I've come across. Yeah. So, I wouldn't mind if you could send me an email with that on that. That'd be great. I, I'll do that. I'll just give, you the, I'll just give uh, listeners the ISBN yeah. number now. It's uh, 20128-0473.x. So that one is correct. And that's, that's the only one. Well, I mean, I've only checked two, but you've checked. Lots. <laughs> yeah, well, I've yeah. Got a, uh, Chinese, uh, Arabic, a German one, Thai, uh, Afrikaans. So they're, they're all incorrect. In fact, that's only that's only correct one. The one you mentioned, the French one, is the only one. But I noticed it says um, um, it's got the term encyclopedia. So maybe it's not actually a, a true dictionary. Yeah, it's actually. Um, I've I've seen it myself. It's it's kind of like a cross between a dictionary and an encyclopedia. It, oh, okay. It, maybe it doesn't count then. So that's a, that's a correct encyclopedia, maybe. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. It's, it's, it's got, it's got a, both the sort of dictionary name and the encyclopedia name in the title. But I can email you the um, ISBN yeah, number yeah. and you can see whether that qualifies uh, as a dictionary. Yeah, thanks, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah we're good. Stephen, the, currently the, the, the Oxford Dictionary Review team are looking at it, the definition. Yeah. Have they yeah. given you any indication as to where they think it's going to go or what they're going to do about it? No, no, no. In fact, I was, I was feeling a bit embarrassed about it because this, you know, the story has gone so far and wide. But see, to, to, to be fair, I think I was very, very impressed because they, um, they responded to me immediately and, and mentioned that this is the current definition goes back to 1911. In fact, that, that's, mm. um, I did actually know that. If I, I've written it down in my notebook. On, on my, my concise OED, it actually says that you know, the first time it's public. It goes back to 1911. Eleven. So, I mean, to to be fair, maybe the information you know about siphons working in a vacuum it wasn't available then. But what intrigues me is that we've gone ninety nine years, and apparently I'm the first to notice this. So, yeah. no one has actually done this. But strangely enough, another of their dictionaries that's and and this is a bit confusing. So we're talking about the Oxford English Dictionary. They also published this is Oxford. University Press, the Oxford Dictionary of English, so it's different. And that is quite correct. That's a very, very good definition. That's a good one. So that, that is correct. And as far as I can see at the moment, it's only that dictionary and, and, and also, strangely, some of the newer, concise Oxford English dictionaries that are correct. 
Have you checked out Macquarie Dictionary, the Australian one? Yeah, well, I actually worked with their editor on a new definition for that uh, several weeks ago. So that, that I think well, the one I looked at, it didn't say it was atmosphere or, or gravity. It just said nothing. <laughs> That'd be right. But, but, I did, but I did look at a big one, <laughs> a big one in the library at the uni the other day, and that did say atmospheric pressure. That's a big version of Macquarie. So it, it's, it's, it's a very uh, prevalent uh, misconception. And again, uh, just to reiterate, I think it's not, in this case, I think it's something potentially will have useful ramifications if, if people do properly understand it. So I think anything, you, you, know, you need to understand, like, uh, you know, say a, a tool in, in a workshop to be able to mm. fully, you know, to use it. Exactly, yeah. So, so it's not just a matter of, I think, you know, yeah, it doesn't really matter about it. I thought, well, it, okay, in the end, the world's going to stay going to carry on. But I just think there's um, there's so much, so, so many useful things that can be done with siphon-like technology, like for draining floodwaters and and maybe transferring irrigation and drinking water, you know, further afield than you'd think possible. Yeah. Well, you know, this could have some million-dollar implications. I mean, imagine if uh, who wants to be a millionaire relied on the answer in the OED for how a siphon works. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Someone could be missing out on their millions. <laughs> All right, look, that, that's fascinating. And uh, I want to thank you very much, uh, oh, Dr. Yeah, Stephen Hughes, for, for joining us. And uh, all, all the best with uh, the further research into that. Well, I'll certainly be following that myself. Yeah, but well, thanks, Edwin, for doing this. Thanks. No problem. Thank you very much. Yep. Okay, I want to introduce my next guest. You may have heard about the nine-year-old boy who has passed his exams for MCSE. He's only nine. Unbelievable. That's crazy. So I tell you yes. what, we've, we've, we're going to have a little chat to him because we've got him here on the show. We're going to have a little chat to him and, uh, and see what it's like to be a nine-year-old with an MCSE. He's in Macedonia. So hello, Marco. Hello, everyone. Marco, how old are you? I'm nine. You're nine years old and I understand you have an MCSE qualification, is that right? I have a uh, Microsoft Certified Systems Engineer qualification which is a certificate which you need to know about planning, implementing, and troubleshooting from small to large networks. That's the required knowledge to pass the certificate. Wow. How does a nine-year-old boy get a qualification like that? Uh, it's possible only if you learn a lot, because if you don't learn, you will not know about it, and you can't pass the certificate. I take it you've always been interested in computers from a very young age. Mm, I think it. Uh, I think it was from a baby, and I don't remember when it was. So I understand you're also doing some. Is it? Are you doing some volunteer work at the school? You're you're helping teach people. Is that correct? Oh, I have my. Uh, I had my own IT school. We shared uh, twelve. Uh, twelve um, students. But now the you know the process ended, and there is there is only one kid which uh, uh, approved to continue. Wow! But so you had your own school. I, yeah, I had my own school. But now I am uh, I'm more focused on my streaming media system because with the streaming media system you can afford a lot more of uh, simultaneous connections, which you can learn from your lessons. Uh, instead of a very small number in one uh, in one classroom, so it's I understand. A big right, so I understand you're trying to transmit HDTV over standard ADSL connections. Is that right? Uh, but uh, my my HDTV system 
is uh, all the internet normally and uh, it can afford up to 2 million of simultaneous users. 2 million? Age, yeah. Wow. Um, and uh, it, the lessons are where, with a very low size of just uh, with a bit rate of just 480 kilobits per second. That's, that's a, a great advantage. That's a really good bit rate. Yeah, for full HD format. Absolutely. And when you compare when you compare it to the published content on the most popular world services, there's a minimal bit rate. Wow, absolutely. Mm. So you live in Macedonia? I live in Macedonia. And the city you live in is Skopje? Capital of Macedonia is Skopje. Right. And my my uh, everyone which has a classical ADSL connection can watch my lessons with no glitches and no problems. So how do, how do people find out about your school? What's the have you got an address people can go to a website address? Well, my my personal website address is www.one.com.mk. one.com.mk is your school that you run, is that on that website? Uh, it is a personal website about me. Oh, okay. Do, what about the uh, the lessons you do? Is there that available? Do you want to give that address out as well? Oh, I have no address uh, uh, still because um, the streaming media system is not implemented yet. Oh, you're still um, you're in the process of implementing it still. Have your friends and family been supportive in in your quest to become certified MCSE? Have you had some help from your friends and and family? My family. I had a lot of support from my family, um, which were, uh, which enabled me the resources to to learn for the material for MCSE and normally to pass the certificate. And what about your friends? Did they were they also supportive, or did they say, "Well, why are you doing this? You shouldn't be doing this. This is not what a nine-year-old boy should be doing." My friends, um, I think that first, uh, when I when I pressed the first certificate, I think um, that they didn't uh, that they didn't um, that they didn't uh, even know that I should pass the certificate. So they didn't expect you to pass. Wow, but you have. So you've you've proved them wrong. I was going to ask you also, what do you do when you're not in front of a computer? I mean, obviously, you're a you're a nine year old boy. You you still have normal interests obviously what what are they after they ask question well normally i do everything which other kids do in, in out i play outside and um, i ride bicycle and i i do everything i do every um ev- simply everything but when i'm in the front of co- the computer um uh, i do not play with the computer i just you know, I just um, am acting as a professional. Wow, that's that's fantastic. You, you don't play games, right? You, I think you, I was reading an article. You're not really interested in games. You're interested in producing thing, useful things with computers. I don't play computer games because um, if I want to play, I will come out and, outside and play. I'm not play on the computer. That's great. That's my philosophy too, actually. I don't play computer games either. I get bored of them. So I understand you also took part in a TV comedy as well. I I'm acting in one TV comedy, humoristic series, and um, in Macedonia it will be uh, it will not worldwide, but it will be um, on 
somewhere around September, it will be transmitted somewhere in the Balkan area. Wow, that's fantastic. You're very talented. You've got many talents. That's fantastic. So how many episodes are you in? Um, I think it was in two it was in three episodes. Right. And has so it's been filmed already? Yeah. Right, but it hasn't, but it hasn't it happened. It was transmitted on... in September. Right, I see. So what do you think you prefer as a career when you get older? Would you want a career in acting or a career in IT? I prefer a career a career in IT because it's my biggest laugh. Yeah, and I understand you're interested in uh, getting closer to IT and perhaps moving to the United States of America. I'm first I try uh, for support in these areas, but if I don't find support in these areas, I will I will go in America because there are the biggest technological resources. Yeah, absolutely. Well, who would you work for? Would you work for Apple, Google, Microsoft? Oh, preferably Microsoft. Microsoft, right? Great. Yeah. I understand they're a great company to work for. So all the best. Look, I want to wish you all the best in your career and everything you do. And I think that's really fantastic what you've achieved so far. So, Marco, thank you very much for talking to us. We really appreciate that and all the best. Nice day, everyone. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Wasn't he just fantastic? Amazing. Amazing. (laughs) What an amazing nine-year-old boy. When I was nine years old, I was not that amazing. He's like the Doogie Howser of Underachiever. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, I look so sad compared to this guy. This guy, he's cool. Yeah. (laughs) Isn't he? So I'm sure he'll do well. I'm I'm Uh, sure he'll do well. Yeah. So uh, something that's in the news right now, Kate, something that's affecting you, I think a trademark that that you either have or trying to to get hold of, Geek Girl? I, I applied for a trademark and it turns out that a woman named Rosie Cross had uh, trademarked the word geek girl back in the mid-90s. It was 95 or 96. And so I put an application in for it in a, in a similar class, apparently. Well, this is all a bit of a mystery for me. I'm not a lawyer. But the interesting thing is that the word geek girl is is something that's very much a community thing and a way that women who are involved in technology refer to themselves mm. uh, generically as geek girls. They're girls, they're geeks, and they talk to, about themselves that way and there is a real community uh, that sees themselves as geek girls. So if you could get hold of that uh, trademark, what, what do you plan to do with it? Well, we wanted to, there's a bunch of us um, in Sydney who would like to run events like bar camp, not for profit things, but building the community of women in technology, more in a a really geeky, hands-on sense, the sense of rolling up your sleeves and playing with hardware and coding and things like that, uh, rather than some of the other women in technology groups that are a bit more corporate and enterprise focused. Did you know, though, that the, the trademark was already filed by Rosie at the, at the time when you lodged your application? Yeah, and you can apply for trademarks that are already registered. You can apply for them in different classes. Right, okay. Um, so have you, you get rejected if you do. It's up to the tra- the people who run trademarks in Australia, the Department of the Australian Government called IP Australia. Cameron, you've had experience with them, haven't you, with the, with the name Groggle? I have, yes, yes. I'm very familiar with the uh, with IP Australia. 
So the, the, the whole thing about Geek Girl, I understand as well that Rosie, at least uh, so the stories go, that Rosie, who's, who's obviously not here now, was allegedly asking people not to use the hashtag Geek Girl on Twitter and to mm. refrain from using that term. Have you been told a similar thing from her or have you not heard from her? I've never had any direct contact with Rosie. Um, I've had direct contact with someone who says he's her partner. Oh, I see. And that was on Twitter, and um, I really decided I didn't want to get into a debate on Twitter about it, so I blocked him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, <laughs> who wants to get into debates? There's an example I just saw today on uh, a wave. There's a women in uh, technology wave and a woman in that wave said, I've set up a geek girl wave specifically for fun wink links and info for fellow nerdy females. Feel free to add to it. Immediate response from geek girl, otherwise known as, as Rosie X. Could you please consider renaming the wave to nerd girls or something as the owner of the trademark and originator of the term geek girl, which I coined some 20 years ago. It may cause confusion. I would really appreciate your consideration. She is Rosie X. I mean, seriously, like she coined the term. That's like that's like Arnold Schwarzenegger coming out and saying, "Hey, you can't register tough guy as a trademark because you know I own that." Or or Steven Seagal or someone saying the same thing. I mean, it's it's a almost generic term. It's highly generic. It and is. even if you did coin it, I'm sorry, you've lost it. That that's gone. That's you know, it, it it's, it's, an, it's an adjective. Domain. It's an adjective and, and a pronoun. I mean, that's yep. that's. It's gone. You yeah, can't. It's common terminology now. It's common terminology, and that is insane. If she thinks she's going to hang on to that, that is ridiculous. And uh, obviously, you're you're trying to register to create a, a a Creative Commons license for it to be used everywhere and almost to hmm. to free it up. But I mean, yeah, I want to set it free because uh, it, it is genuinely something that people in the community feel that is part of their world and that they yeah. identify with it. And the analogy is gay, so. I've got some in-laws whose surname is Gay and, you know, their companies and businesses that they run have the word gay in it. They're not asking gay people who are doing gay pride marches to stop using their word. <clears throat> That's crazy. It's a shame we couldn't get Rosie on. We, we did, in fact, invite her to, to participate in the show just to, to get both sides of the, of the story. She did issue a statement, which uh, we'll read out, uh, not in its entirety, but uh, we'll read an excerpt from it. She says that I have refrained from making comment before now because of the power of social media to continue to reverberate misinformation in an echo chamber. This is something to think about as global social networks evolve. I am proud to have originated and created a meme geek girl with such impact to empower other women and to enable the recognition of women across different platforms and technologies. I stand on my achievements, international recognition, publications, exhibitions and other work since the early 90s. It's a disgrace for people to challenge me and want to harm my reputation in business. Although currently looking for ways to resolve this issue with Kate Carruthers for the greater good, I will continue to defend my trademark given it was lodged in 1995 and I am well within my rights to do so. So what's your, what's your, what's your take on this, Kate? I mean, you... I don't want to own the trademark. That's the thing. I mean, I, you want to set it free? I want, yeah. I want it to be free. So this is the thing. It Rosie be tra- is be a person... She is a person, a woman of historical significance in the geek community in Australia. She was one of the very early adopters. She took a leadership role and she has been an inspiration to a lot of women. And 
rather than celebrating the fact that a whole lot of women are now embracing that and participating and calling themselves geek girls and seeing themselves as geek girls and she as the prototypical geek girl, she's say trying to protect, protect her space, her turf, and say, no, there's a boundary here. I own this. You can't own this. You can't participate and you can't collaborate. <laughs> you can't and be a geek just, girl because she. You was can't the first. be a geek girl because I am. So surely, though, shouldn't it this come down to the fact that whether the trademark is still sort of trademarkable, if you like, mm. and shouldn't we just go around using it? And what I'm getting at is, if she doesn't really have a leg to stand on, then that will surely play itself out if she tries to take action. Well, I mean, the legal processes will will take their due course. And what has happened now is a whole lot of people are aware of it and can make their own decisions about what they want to do, how they identify, how they want to be participating in this space. But, you know, the one thing with the internet that I loved when I first came upon it was the openness, the collaborative spirit, the way people just mucked in and worked together. And, you know, I just don't get that vibe right now around this and I, I feel that you know when I get uh, someone saying why are you using this hashtag somebody's trademarked it not even major brands do that when I use their ha- yeah. name as a hashtag that's a point I was, was going to say the same thing yeah I can't even see Coca-Cola if you use Coca-Cola as a hashtag they'd be going yeah cool yeah Thanks. they'd be happy they'd that, be happy at least you didn't yeah. say Pepsi <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly you're talking cola we're having a big night we're going to have some cola hashtag Coca-Cola Thank you very much. We love that. Yeah, they'd like that. I don't want to take away the thing that that Rosie is a pioneer and deserves respect for what she's achieved. But now there's a community of people who feel that 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 word has taken on a much broader uh, meaning in life than just yeah. one person. And and it would that would to me would be something to celebrate and enjoy. Yes. Yes. And say, I'm a leader. All of these people have followed me. Isn't that cool? I just yeah. think it's really sad. It would seem so much cooler for her. To, yeah, it'd be so much cooler for her to just let that go, put it out there and say, hey, you know, I started this. I, I coined this phrase if she did coin the phrase. And, and yeah, set it free. I mean, that, that, that's – you think she would be looking for that, that, that sort of level of respect other than being also very corporate about it, hanging on to the, the, the name and not letting a hashtag for – for Geek Girl appear on Twitter. I mean, that's just insane. <laughs> well, this, sto- insane. this story kind of worries me a little bit in the more general sense that isn't it a bit of a worry if you can't use certain hashtags? I mean, I don't know whether you can or not or whether she's just saying you can't, but if it's true that, you know, uh, a trademark name can't be used if the owner doesn't want you to, it kind of worries me a little bit because I'm thinking about all these things that I've tweeted or said or published on a blog that trademark owners might not want me to write. <laughs> but it seems crazy. It's almost like uh, there's no logic to it. It's a restriction of language. Yeah, it is. Okay, yeah. if you try to do like like some sort of online sort of um, protest where just get everyone over a certain like time period to doesn't matter what they tweet, just add the hashtag Geek Girl to to prove a point. Like to sort of, um, I mean, it would eventually become a trending topic within Twitter and. Just, just, just to show that it. it I mean, it, it's a free word. I mean, it, it's. I, th- I think that those, that the awareness is out there now about okay. the issue, and I think the fact that the usage, especially on Twitter, is largely non-commercial, that it can be done. But what 
when people are approached in a very strong way to back away from a particular word or something, then then they're tentative about using it. So, you know, you you think twice before putting hash whatever it is, whatever word it was, if somebody came to you as very strongly and said, I want you to change that name, just like that example I used of renaming that wave, you know, please consider renaming the wave to Nerd Girls or something. Yeah, because, I mean, to be honest, I, I wouldn't really think twice of using, if I wanted to, use Geek Girl or even Geek Boy for that matter. You know, that kind of, to me, it's just kind of something yeah. generic. I'm not saying... They are incredibly I'm, generic. I'm not referring to the person who owns that particular trademark if someone does. It's just, I'm a geek boy, you know? I I don't know. Has she applied for a, a worldwide trademark that you're aware of? Uh, I've only looked at Australia. I'm not aware. Okay. Because, I mean, you could argue that basically Twitter is based in the US. You are using a US-based service. Geek Girl is not registered as a trademark in the US, so you're free to use it. Um, yeah, but being in Australia, I think, makes a difference. Maybe. Yeah, it's, it's there's more complicated legal stuff. We should go to legal ex- experting to explain this all, it all to us. Yeah. Wow. So I guess the advice for now is to just watch what hashtags you use, or in fact, just watch what trademarks you use. Full stop. Is that kind of the what all this means, or, or <laughs> use whatever just you use, want, just to not worry about it? <laughs> Who knows? Use whatever you want. That's what I say. I, I just think it's pity that I'm hoping that it can be resolved amicably and the community can be left in peace to use a word that they clearly identify with and clearly want to use in non-commercial ways. We're not trying to take money off anybody or anything, but we're just trying to be ourselves. And if we want to have, say, a bar camp or an unconference that's about geek girls, we want to be able to do it in peace. Sounds fair enough to me. Sounds fair enough indeed. Yep. Agreed. All right, next story then. Google. The H264 debate's been going for a while, uh, that's for sure. It kind of spurred on by Steve Jobs at, at Apple. And, and Microsoft's yeah. announcement for IE9. Yes, correct. That, we talked about that uh, one or two episodes ago. Google uh, purchased a, a company called OM2, and it's got a codec VP8, which, they, which Google planned to open source and provide as an alternative to H.264, which, as we talked about, Brett, is, is uh, laden with all sorts of uh, patents yes, and so on that you have to pay for. it is mired with patents and <laughs> bits and pieces you have to wade through and fees that need to be paid if you want to create something which encodes or delivers H.264 video. So Google, Mozilla and Opera announced the, the launch of this project called WebM. And the goal of, is basically to develop high-quality, open-source, and royalty-free Free. video format on, uh, for use on the web. Uh, so this will really give H.264 a run for their money because it kind of adds a whole new dimension to it. What The thing is, that I think what it boils down to, though, to be honest, is really what Microsoft and, to some extent, what Apple um, as well are going to do. Mm. Uh, but we know well, what Apple's going to do. They're not going to move. Well, yeah, Apple's got a lot of invested interest in H.264. A lot of those patents which it's based off of belong to them. Microsoft has patents which are involved in H.264, so they've got an invested interest, just not quite as big as Apple's. But Microsoft has claimed that the reason that they're putting through H.264 as the only inherent video format for uh, the new Internet Explorer is because of the legal concerns about anything that's open source. 
whether it really is, if somebody brings a claim, if that open source video codec actually is based off of something which is patented, then there's the, you know, the, the legal nightmare involved in that. And so that's why Microsoft, well, that's what Microsoft is claiming is the reason they haven't put in things such as the Fiora open source video codec. Well, but, actually, the reason for that, though, isn't it, is that the, it's actually pretty poor quality. It's not great quality, no. When you compare um, it to H.264 and, and even WebM as well. Yeah, yeah. But this is where this new program with the WebM is, because it's going to be using, based off of the VP8 video codec, it's going to be using the Ogvorbis audio codec, all packaged up in the completely open source Matroska container format, which is starting to get out there. I've, I've seen videos proje- um, presented in this format it, itself, but not as many as you find in your MPEGs and um, your WMVs. Well, actually, you can go to YouTube and view them in, in the WebM format now, can't you, by appending ampersand WebM equals one to the URL. Exactly, so exactly. You can, that, you can get a, it through, that- you can get it through HTML5 through um, YouTube. Yeah, I think the whole HTML5 spec in particular, uh, but also coupled with what browsers are actually going to support uh, potentially beyond that is going to be an interesting one over the next uh, few months and years because mm. this is this is a whole new... I can kind of understand where Microsoft are coming from though. You know, we have seen things that are supposedly free and, you know, can be used without worry uh, turn out not to be the case. And if you've created something that uses that component and it turns out to be infringing on some patents, then you'd better change your code yourself and so you're kind of stuck. Yeah, So Microsoft yeah. well, don't want to invest in, in something that has that risk. This is where Google can do some leveraging. You would have thought that in the purchase of ON2 and in the development of WPA, they will have done their due diligence about looking at you know the sources of it. Yeah, but it's it hard though it? because this, they're so complex though, aren't they? You have it to, is. They rely on a lot of things and you have to look at how it compares to... But it's also patents and the counter to that is it's also incredibly difficult to prove that it is. Well, that's a point. Yeah, (laughs) true. Works works both ways, doesn't it? But because it's got Google's backing behind it, there's you know there's a stronger emphasis on uh, it's open and free and Google uh, putting their weight behind ensuring that it stays that way, and it also gives once again that the same big boy in the schoolyard sort of feel to it. Who's going to actually feel comfortable taking on Google over infringement if they can't, you know, really prove it? So that you're saying they better have a pretty strong case if they're, if they're going to. Hmm. So these are things which I think Google has, what, what Google can claim to be going for them to push WebM to be available as a open and free codec and used in HTML5 and brought into the HTML5 specifications and bring it as leverage as to why Microsoft and Apple should make it available on their um, browsers. One thing that's been suggested is that what Google should do is offer indemnification. So in other words, they guarantee that if it turns out that it violates a, a patent, Google will have it covered. They'll, they'll pay you what it costs to, to fix that up. Mm. They haven't done that. And, but if they did, I think they'd have a, a pretty strong case. And Well, put it this way. Microsoft wouldn't really have a strong reason not to use it. Yes. If, if, that's, if the reason that they gave was valid. Quite true. Quite true. Well, watch the space is what I can say. Mm. 
Anyone seen those new uh, Panasonic uh, Skype TVs? Or Skype for the uh, VeraCast HDTV? Anyone had a look at that? No, no, they look good though. You've seen the yeah, story, yeah. I, yeah. yeah. You're finding a lot of televisions are internet capable, internet connected now. So it doesn't surprise me at all that um, some enterprising group have pushed out Skype on their internet enabled television. I like the idea of using Skype on the TV because you, you can kind of imagine if you're talking to a friend or, or family in particular, especially if they're yeah. overseas and that kind of thing, you get around on the couch and have a nice little chat to them and yeah. you're, you're in a comfortable environment. You're not sitting in, in, a, in a study in front of a computer and it's easy. Yep. It's, it's out of the box. This is the key exactly. thing. Exactly. It's out of the box. Yeah. It is opening it up to a much wider audience who, you know, the audience of the, the granddads and grandmas sitting out there with their brand new televisions, their dislike of computers, but having it available on a television format, which they would be relatively comfortable with and probably very simple to use with a easy to use remote. Once and they point it the right way. Well, yeah. <laughs> and they'd still be trying to find the channel where their family's on. They'd still keep skipping through everything. <laughs> oh, precisely. Yeah. Where is this But thing? they'd still get it. <laughs> I think yeah, channel it, it opens up, it, well, it gives Skype access to a even larger audience. It does, it does. When you consider that Skype's already the largest uh, international carrier, you know, it just takes their base out to a huge audience. Mm. Oh, by a long way. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And I think I think this is the kind of thing now that this convergence that we're seeing that is, is just going to keep on going. And I'm looking forward to it. I'm, in fact, I'll, I'll make sure my next TV is a, a Panasonic VeraCast HDTV. I've actually, <laughs> I've actually got one. Have you? I, well, mine, mine's a, a Panasonic Vera. I've got the VeraCast within the – I've got a Panasonic uh, Blu-ray player as well. So that has the VeraCast um, application in, in the DVD player. So Ooh, can you, you might be able to Skype from your television next time. I, well, I'm hoping so. That's the thing. I've, I've got to check it out. I only read this today. You don't and want to see us this big, you know, on your 50-inch <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no I, won't be, I won't be calling you guys. Um, but, <laughs> What's this going to uh, do to the adult industry? Will it oh, revolutionize yeah. it you, somehow? Oh, yes, you know it will. Uh, yeah. I, <laughs> yes, well. Good point. Yeah. Uh, apparently, I mean, porn's always been the big pusher of... Um, any any new sort of technology? I mean, it, yeah, you know, innovation. It broke the internet. It broke. Uh, it, it determined that the Blu-ray high definition, you know, debacle from a few years back. VHS. Yeah. VHS. Yeah, yeah the, that's the, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Have you got the camera though? The that the goes onto the TV. Yeah, that's one. No, catch. no, no. As I said, it, it's only just come out. Apparently, they're talking about it just being aligned with some TVs, but uh, within the Viracast system, when I go to the, like when I press the Viracast button on my DVD player. It brings up uh, the YouTube functionality and Picasa. It's also got the Bloomberg news and, and some sort of weather and stocks and stuff. But there's a couple of other windows there that say coming soon. So I'm ah, assuming they're well, going to bring – yeah, because yeah, in the US within the Viracast uh, Panasonic thing, they've got um, uh, Netflix. So you can watch videos on demand and a few other you know, functionalities. And they haven't brought that out here, but I'm assuming that's what they're going to do out here. I spoke to someone from QuickFlix in Australia, which is our, the Australian version of Netflix, and they said, yeah, you know, sort of mid-year, get ready for something to happen with us and, and Panasonic. So I'm assuming that, yeah, that, that, that there's something that's going to happen soon. So oh, it'd, be, right. it'd be great if it was the, the Skype uh, functionality. That'd be fantastic. Mm. 
<laughs> All I can see is with these, you know, a, a much larger prevalence of um, video things, at some point in the future, we may have to hire some much better looking people than ourselves to be our faces for the boys of tech. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think we used a stylized face instead of a, an actual photo? <laughs> <laughs> Hey, no, 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 what you can do is hire an image consultant. They'll do your makeover. You can make uh, one of your yes, shows. Yes, indeed. All righty. So uh, what are, we, are we done with the TV story? Yeah. Uh, I think so. Yeah, okay. I think we've done it. Okay, we've done it. We'll move on. Facebook. Yeah, look good. Edwin's going to get one. Yep. Okay, I'll get one. And uh, I didn't say that. <laughs> I said my next one will be. I didn't say when I'll get that. Uh, I'll get it after it's obsolete. Now, look, Facebook <laughs> have had some, <laughs> some, had some bad press recently. And we actually covered a story a while ago about uh, our Russian dude, Kirillos, as uh, you may recall, yes. who, who said he was in New Zealand. He wasn't. Now, Facebook have apparently discovered the identity of this guy. They haven't told us who it is. He is, that have... is that because he had a Facebook profile? Or... Yes, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Apparently he had 1.5 million credentials or so he said. Facebook have conducted an investigation. They believe they know who he is. They don't think that he the amount of had, accounts yeah. he actually had access to was that quite that many. I think it's more than tens of thousands. They've said, yeah, yeah. I think it's in the tens of thousands. They they believe he's in, in Russia, and they've contacted the uh, Russian law enforcement agencies. Facebook have set up their security login security accordingly. They have. They've done quite some due diligence with their new security settings. Or well, once again, you actually have to go in and turn them on. Yeah, I was um, going to say that they implemented but, a whole bunch of stuff, but it's not on by default, is it? No, no. It, it, it does is. take a little bit. It does take a little bit to do. So I'm guessing they're going for making sure that everything works for the for the general audience and for those who want to enable the new security system, they can go into their security settings and turn them on. I don't use Facebook as you guys know. Have you been into Facebook and had a had a look at these settings? I have. I have. I've turned them on. And Cameron, what about you? Um yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've had to jump in a few times and sort of constantly keep checking my um, my Facebook security settings because they keep, as you know, every time they, they change them, they sort of set it to their default, which is, hell, anyone can walk around and have a look at what you're doing. Yeah, but why do they um, do this? This is the opportunity. This was their opportunity now to get a new set of security features and put because, it on by default. This is yeah, their chance they, to fix they it. Have, they have a lot of information to sell to third parties, whether it be advertising people, um, the people who develop the applications, you know, with 450 million users, I mean, that is a huge market to, to push to, mm. uh, to advertisers and whatnot. So that that's basically what they're doing it for. They rely up to, uh, you know, the individual user to opt in and, and, and sort of change the settings if they want to, knowing that most people won't, won't care or won't even know about it and sort of, you know, that they win. It, it's kind of dodgy. I was reading an article just recently where if you want to lock down your account completely, so that there is absolutely no way that anyone from the outside can see anything. It's like 150 different uh, clicks or oh wow or, or, tick, or tick boxes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. crazy. It I can took forever when I did it recently. Uh, I've just closed it down from all my family, and it took ages. Wow. <laughs> Except for the people I don't like who I left open <laughs> to annoy them. <laughs> They're just brothers. Um, <laughs> But what's worse though is my mum's just joined Facebook. This this is not cool. <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah, yeah, we just have, you have to start <laughs> making new security settings and group settings around yeah. your 
parents joining yeah. Facebook so it's they of, don't see uh, your stuff. That's but none of the real stuff's happening in Facebook, is it? Like, that's just where normal people do things now, isn't it? Yeah, it's where normal people make mistakes. Exactly. That's the thing is I have um, – some of my friends are normal people and they tag me in crazy stuff that I don't want my mum to see. Mum's going to see that. Yeah, yeah, I've had that. I've had a limited profile. Yeah, the, uh, don't worry, I've created a limited profile. She doesn't know any different. She just thinks it's just, hey, you didn't really have much on there. Yeah, good. <laughs> Thank <laughs> God those settings are working. I don't use it a lot. I don't use yeah, it she's like, I can't see any photos of you. I'm going, yeah, the security <laughs> settings are working fine. <laughs> oh, man, that's a bit like your mum turning up at a party. Exactly. I'm more so I'm just worried about I'm accidentally going to poker one day. That's just not cool. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> No, definitely not. Uh, I think I'm going to move on. Uh, The settings that they do have do work, and if you take the time to set them up, it does make your account a lot more secure. It does. It's It's just a bit labor-intensive. Yeah, yeah. It's basically you create, you know, uh, step-by-step authorize the PCs that you use to view Facebook. And so you authorize those PCs. And so if you somebody attempts to access your Facebook account from a non-authorized PC or device, then it goes through extra security steps to make sure that you prove that you really are you. I think that's so, a good idea. Yeah, it does add. Yeah, that, that makes sense. It's logical. Makes sense. Yeah. And yeah, it, but the thought of explaining that to my auntie Doreen, who's in her 70s, is exactly. just my head in. I think that's the reason why it's not on by default, because you do have to wrap your head around it. Well, to actually do it, to actually get past it. I thought, uh, but well, that, to set it up and to know what you're doing when you're setting it up. Oh, I see. Right. Like, can you imagine explaining that to your, to your um, old auntie, that she's authorizing her computer to view Facebook, but when she uses it from work, she's got to authorize that computer. And It's, it's, it's hard enough to get them to type in facebook.com in the address bar and not Google. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> does it, does it, is it just me or do people just seem to type URLs in Google? Oh, well, man, it's because it Google, me crazy. Google yeah. or Bing or one of the search engines oh. is their homepage, and so when they fire it up, that's what they type it into. <laughs> Some people don't even know that there's an address bar that exists, you know? Yeah, no. They don't. I've, I've had arguments with people when I've said to them, um, I don't use Internet Explorer. I said, like, I use Chrome. And they go, oh, I use Google. I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, no, no, I like, had a friend no, ask no me what was a browser the other day. Yeah. <laughs> oh, really? So you'd restart your browser and you went, huh? What's a browser? Like, <laughs> <laughs> What's the browser? It's the Internet thing in front of you. <laughs> yeah. It's scary. It's really scary. And a lot of people just literally, I've seen people at work and they sit there and they they go, oh, I want to show you something on Facebook. And they go to Google and they type in Facebook and then click on, obviously, the, the link that's at the top. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> There's two extra steps that you did not need. Maybe yeah. we could uh, educate this, these people on a, on a green basis. You know, it's greener, you know, save bits. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> yes, every bit yeah. you save <laughs> saves the planet. <laughs> saves the planet a bit. Uh, that's brilliant. <laughs> All right, so what's happening at Amazon now? There's uh, rumors that they're going to start uh, a device to compete head-on with the iPad. I predict fail. Um, yeah, I think they should just really focus on um, the Kindle. Uh, Which I mean, is what they've got already. Yeah, That's right. They should focus on that, develop that, keep that going. The idea that Amazon is going to take on Apple is is ludicrous. I mean, that's just... Mm. 
That's just not going to happen. The iPad's already a game changer in so many different ways. I can't see anyone or in any company, yeah. you know, maybe, maybe Google can, can, can produce a, a device well, that, that's sort of um, comparable or even Microsoft to a point, and even they've given up with the, the Courier device, I believe. I it, still mourn the loss of the Courier. It looks yeah, so nice. Yeah, I, I just think, I mean, seriously, Amazon, they've got to be kidding me. So, you know. I, my, I think this is a. Kindle's good. The Kindle is a really, really utilitarian device for what it is, and it's really good for non-geek people who travel and things like that. It's it's easy on the eyes, easy to read. It's just so usable. It is. And what yeah. I think this is, I think this is another example of people jumping on the iPad killer bandwagon of claiming something as an iPad killer when it really isn't. What I think this is is... This is a, uh, a story about Amazon using the technology from the company they purchased in February or something, TouchCo, their touchscreen technology to enhance the next generation Kindle device. Uh-huh. That's what I think this is really about. It's a new generation Kindle device. Amazon would be shooting themselves in the foot if they tried to do anything outside of that sphere to take on an iPad. They've already got a brilliant device, as you were saying, Kate. It's it's perfect for what it does, and bringing in some touchscreen technology into it will bring an interface which people are getting more and more used to, bring it up um, to a next-generation sort of level for the Kindle, and to not try and compete anything with the iPad. Hell, they've even released a Kindle e-reader for the iPad. So it's... Why so, would so they maybe, need to create a device to c- compete with it? So maybe maybe this is just the media hype is creating the the term you know iPad killer. From, from, I think so. Yeah, okay. I think so. That makes a lot more sense. Either that, or they're they're trying to leverage off the that term themselves by branding it, it as an iPad killer. Like, oh, what is it? Everyone, as soon as they, you see iPad might, killer, but you it doesn't do anything more than no. what the normally it doesn't does. Help it just explain it way better. Or brand. Yeah, it'll no. just. Compared to Apple and iPad with, with their design focus, it's not going to be as compelling a design offer. But do we so know that? It does make sense. But do well, we, we haven't seen it yet. Who else has done as good design as Apple has consistently? Mm. No. no. <laughs> exactly. Because they're not design-driven companies. That's what they do. And then Apple's people follow. So, you know, what is Amazon? Amazon is a retail company. It's an online retail company, so everything they do is directed about selling stuff. And this is just another channel for them to sell stuff, and it's a way for them to actually break the nexus of publishers in in their market. So what we're likely to see is just a, a slightly better Kindle. It's the next generation, the Kindle yeah. Next generation Kindle, right. For sure. Yeah. With, with, with a um, touch screen, probably. With yeah, touch screen probably. interface. That makes sense. And it'll be yeah, it does. Yeah. sticking with e-ink because you can't get better than e-ink for actual reading. Of e-ink is great, yeah. yeah. It's, it's fantastic. Brilliant. Nice. So I, yeah. see Austra- so I see Cameron, Australia. Well, Cameron and Kate, you're both in Australia. I, I see uh, you're getting a new e-store for e-books. Yeah, yeah apparently, apparently we are. so. Now, Cameron, <laughs> we talked about that, I think, on episode 64. We did, my last episode, yeah. Yeah, in fact, because we, Whitcalls in New Zealand here announced that they were doing that, and I think your comment was, what's Whitcalls? I, it was, it was, and a lot of my Kiwi friends laughed when they, they all sent me emails going, <laughs> what's Whitcalls? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, no, well, it's, uh, yeah, it looks like the, the Borders chain and Angus and Robinson are bringing it out, so um, 
Yeah, that, that could be interesting. They're bringing out a reader as well, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's called the Kobo. I don't know what that is in terms of whether um, uh, there's a US company brought one out, Barnes and Noble. So I'm not sure whether it's it's a it's a. I've done a bit of research and I, I can't tell. I'm not sure whether it's just a rebranded Barnes and Noble version. Uh, but they've called it the Kobo, and essentially, yeah, it's a Kindle. It looks yeah. great. Um, it does. It looks very nice. It it's doesn't. A good price. It's not as. I mean, it's 199 dollars which is probably like $1,000 New Zealand. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a great price. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of concerned about the price of, of e-books though. I mean, they're quoting between $10 and $15 per book here and I'm like, I don't know. This is about them trying to keep their margins up. Yeah, the it big, is. Yeah, I, mean, yeah. I, I was on a panel at the State Library of New South Wales a couple of weeks ago and I was on the panel about the future of libraries and a couple of guys on the panel were booksellers of really well-known bookstores, and they are just really worried about this whole thing. And like, why would we go to a bookstore to get an e-book? So their whole business model is just being destroyed around them, and these are the kinds of things that people are going to be doing as last-ditch efforts to try and save the old business model. Well, I would have thought ten dollars isn't too bad. If it attend Australian, I presume we're talking well, about, not yeah, to US. Yeah, that will be. 10 Australian dollars. I, I wouldn't consider that too bad when your, you know, your paper hard copy book is looking at uh, in New Zealand, 35 to 40 odd dollars for a decent hardcover. Yeah. But you're talking hardcover. I mean, soft, soft, you know, soft covers here are like, soft 20. covers are still like, yeah, 25 to $30 here. Uh, okay. See, so you're looking, you wouldn't pay any more than sort of 20 here. I would think. Would you agree, Kate? Mm, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, fifteen dollars. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. See, dollars for an ebook is like you got to be kidding me. I'd rather have, you know. Well, you'd go, you'd go that. somewhere like Target or Kmart, which exactly. have deals where they they get those same books that the bookstores have popular. This is popular fiction. Yeah. And you can buy them at, at very deep discounts there. So you know you can actually buy what's in for twenty five dollars in a bookstore in one of those uh, department stores, discount department stores for fifteen. So yeah. in, in Australia, if it was retailing, as it said, expects to retail between ten and fifteen, that would be a little high from from your point of view. You could you could get the real real McCoy for uh, well, not for not much more. For not uh, much I more. Agree. Yeah. And, and, and the example they've given here on the article I'm looking at, they're showing some manga articles and uh, sorry, some uh, manga books and whatnot. I mean, you kind of well, you know, if something's going to have illustrations, I'd rather have the book. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Maybe some yeah. Uh, some some cool business books and whatnot. Uh, definitely periodicals if they were going to run some sort of um you know, your local uh, newspapers and, and magazines and whatnot, that, that'd be kind of okay because yeah. they're kind of disposable. You're not going to go back again and read them. If they were cheap enough, that'd be fine. But I don't know, some novels, I think I'd just rather, you know, something you're going to go back to, like a nice album. Like a, you know, sometimes I, there's, a, there's great albums I love. There's good books that I love. And I'll go back to them year after year and pick them up and, and read them. And I, yeah. just, I kind of want to hold that. You know, I want to, to have that in the physical form. I just can't see me accepting an ebook, and especially for the price. Would this be the first ebook store for Australia? I think within Australia. Yeah. Well, the Kindle's been available here for, for what, uh, at least three or four months now? Oh, yeah. put stuff some, on there. some people got them for Christmas. Well, you, yeah. you get it from Amazon. But I think it's, you're ordering them from the US, and we don't have the WhisperNet functionality. I don't yeah. think the Kobo has it either. In the US, you get the WhisperNet, so it's it's you can get uh, you can subscribe to say the New York Times or the New Yorker or whatever newspaper you've got, and every morning you wake up and it's sitting there, you know, ready to go. It's just downloaded overnight. 
Uh, it's it's a free internet service to, to basically provide you with books, and and when, if you want to order one, you can get it. I don't think that Kobo does that. I've done a bit of research. I can't seem to see that it's offering anything like that. I'm not even sure it has Wi-Fi. I'm assuming it does. No, it doesn't. It, it doesn't does. have oh, no Wi-Fi. It must no be connected. Yeah, it has to be connected. Yeah. Okay, Kobo failed. I think most, yeah. I think a lot of that was to keep the cost down. Yeah, I think that's what it's about. Nah. What? Well, you have to remember, we are geek girls and geek boys, if I can use those terms. Well, no, no, you can't use but, that term. Oh, sorry, I have to. We're, just, we're getting sued right <laughs> now as we speak. <laughs> we are geek people. So we're geek people. <laughs> yeah, there we go. I like that. So we're geek people. Uh, I just wonder, though, whether that, see, all that stuff doesn't really matter to your average, I don't know, mum and dad. They plug it in because that's what they know to do, and that's it. No, no, but you don't understand. I live with a normal person, right? And... <laughs> They, now that they have, we have the special magic of um, wireless in our house, they don't plug anything in and they don't know how to plug things in. <laughs> oh, I it's see. Yeah, awesome. okay. Yeah, and they just plug. They don't know to do anything. And so, you know, the only way I can give him stuff now is is that it just when he walks into the house, it just automatically connects and does things for him. Maybe you have a point. <laughs> yeah, so, so maybe this have... is a bit of a fail product. Well, I guess, we'll, uh, you know, again, well, t- we'll time will tell. Yeah. See how it, see yeah, how it takes off. But every person, they want the internet just to appear like electricity. Like they just turn a computer on. It is and there. It's there. Like yeah. Yeah, there's, no, there's no setting up. There's no configuring. It's like they don't want to know about that. That's, mm. To them, that, that, that's just that's crazy talk. Um, <laughs> well, it's scary and they don't know what to do. You know, if you get a little error box, they just sit there and panic or randomly yeah. press buttons and break yeah. <laughs> Oh, or they, or they no. tell you the internet's broken. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, sorry, the guy that runs it is out to lunch. I'll, yeah. I'll let him know. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, but this ebook store looks pretty good. Two million titles, apparently, from from more than one hundred yep. local publishers. So, and the vast majority of them will be available for free because they will be out of copyright titles, yeah. things that are no longer being produced. So, I think it'll be a boon for getting those old, you know, the the old school books or, or um, novels that have been out of print for a long time, like yeah, Shakespeare I- and stuff. Well, yeah. <laughs> Though so I believe he's still in print. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was just thinking he's out of copyright, though. Like, oh, yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah, like Dickens. Exactly. What about so, the Brontes and, and stuff? They must be. Oh. Now, that's just Kate putting her mute on because she got that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I freaked out. I'm like, oh, my God. Everything, everything just went quiet about yeah, yeah, No, no, we're still there. Cool. This is what it should be like. <laughs> no offence, Kate. <laughs> I don't know what that hiss is on your line, but um, anyway. I live in the country. Do you? I thought you lived in Sydney. Yeah, I thought you well, lived in Sydney too. Well, I live on the, the edge of Sydney where we have very old-fashioned telecommunications. Ah, uh, it's probably copper cable and there might be something nibbling on it. Ah, yeah, it is, you're right. It is. Do you have to go out and like maybe... Turn a crank to get it going again, or something. Are you kidding? This whole town was on pair game when I got here. Wow, that's crazy. We're lucky I have the hiss on the line. I tell you. <laughs> oh, so where did we get to? I think we've done the story. I want to move on to Firefox. Apparently, some yep. people think that Firefox. This could be it for Firefox. This could be as popular as it gets for Firefox. Some yeah. people think it's uh, heading for a massive decline. Yes, it's not innovating at an innovative pace anymore. It's being a little too tentative. It's gone back to Netscape. Yeah, actually, it's it's big and bloated. Yeah, yeah. I've I've ditched Firefox. I was a big Firefox fan for many years, and I've had to I've had to say goodbye. So, what do you use now? I use Chrome. I use Chrome. Yeah. What are you using, Kate? I'm I'm really getting quite fond of Safari on my PC. And I use uh, Chrome on my Mac. 
It's funny. I, I, I've never known anyone who actually like Safari on the PC. I like Safari on the Mac, but I, I don't know. Safari on the PC just seems weird. It does. I, I didn't like, I don't it, like it on either. Oh, I, I use and I use Firefox on my Linux PC. I tell you what I like about Safari is the way it renders fonts. Yeah, it's nicer. It, it is very, sure. very crisp, very clean. Less, yeah. not so jagged. Mm. So yeah, apparently its co-founder thinks so, Blake Ross. And he could be right. I don't know. But apparently Google, you know, Chrome is making huge inroads into the, into the browser share. It is. I just found Firefox to be too bloated. Like, I just found it like uh, too much of a, a memory hog. I, uh, you know, I basically reboot my computer maybe once every sort of three weeks now. And I couldn't do that before with Firefox. Um, with Chrome, there's no issues. I can have like a million tabs open. It, it just keeps going. Uh, Firefox, I could have two tabs open and it's, it's a time thing. It just seems to be over a period of time, give it a day and it's as slow as, as anything. And just, just, it becomes useless after a while. And they don't seem to be doing anything about it. There no, are no updates, no, as Brett said, no innovation or, or slow. And they break it every time they do a new release. Yeah. It's, it's just runs like a dog. Yeah. 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 The, the, first, the first new release will run like a dog and then there'll be a patch. Relatively yeah. quickly afterwards to fix the bit. <laughs> Who do they think they are, Microsoft? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if anything, if anything, Firefox will 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 remain in history as a as a point of uh, how great uh, open source uh, technology can move. And you got to hand it to them. I mean, the whole the whole idea of um, it being an open source browser, it was pretty much the first one to 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 take on uh, you know Internet Explorer. The add-ons, all the all the customization you could do. I mean, it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Well, and don't forget they also well, didn't they set the record for the most downloaded software, Firefox three, in one yes. day. I think they got yeah. the record in the end, didn't they? They, do. they, they do. probably did. Yeah. That record. Yeah. Well, they're, they're, um, they're not driving that innovation fast enough, and it's where you start to ask yourself: Is that where you need a very very big corporation behind it with an R and D lab that's looking to drive innovation? Yeah. I guess that's the limitations of open source. Well, I'm not saying open source is bad. I'm just saying that's just you know one of the limitations that, that we have to, to work with. Well, from an enterprise point of view, one of the big problems you have with open source is people only work on what they're interested in. They're very rarely interested in the compelling uh, things that can be monetized by companies for free. They, they'll do it themselves, but you know that, so you don't get that kind of drive that you can use in business. No, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Not often anyway. Well, the Mozilla CEO reckons that the new version of Firefox coming out in the fall in the US version 4 uh, will be bringing another leap forward. So we'll see what happens then. Now that Microsoft also, this is the other side of things, Microsoft are really, really pushing standards driven. And that was the, the thing that was letting you know IE down for a long time was that, you know, it had its own set of standards. <laughs> yes, it, it went by its standards. Its own rules, yeah. Else's. There was the Internet Explorer way and then the everybody else way, which was supposed to be the right way. But, of course, with at, you know, that's peak, 90% of the, the market, it, you know, it was hard to shift. So now with IE9 being very much standards compliant, I think this, this, whole, this could also, I think, personally, it could all swing back into IE's favour, actually. Even though Google's made some good inroads, I don't know that that will last. I could be wrong. It comes down to what's on your PC when you get it if you're a normal person. 
So if Internet Explorer is what was on your PC and you're familiar with that, that's what you'll just keep using. So it depends yeah. on what comes up first on the ballot page if you're in Europe. Yes. What's the link on the left of that ballot page? <laughs> yeah. And I think even then you'll find that a lot of the people, your generic sort of user uh, in Europe getting that ballot page will see Microsoft Internet Explorer and go, ah, Microsoft, and click on that anyway. Quite possibly. Now, Kate, you mentioned you, uh, you've you got a Linux box. Yep. I wanted to go through the 10 or actually 12 mistakes that Linux newbies make that was posted by uh, Tech Republic. I just thought we'd, we'd just step through the list and see what we think and whether they're right. The number one mistake that people, that new, Linux newbies make is assuming they are using Windows. What do you reckon, guys? Yes. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I've, yeah, yeah, sure. It's always a shock to them to, to uh, see that they're not, got the familiar stuff from Windows. The second thing is trying to make EXE files work. Who's I think that goes hand in hand. Well, yeah, I think you're right. That's kind of, yeah, it's the same point. Yeah. Not yeah. realizing that different operating systems have different, you know, different program formats, different types, and so they can't use what they would normally have used. I mean, I find it interesting because, I mean, I'm a relatively new Mac user. Like, I've only started using a Mac solely in the last three months. And I find that when you go to like download files, it only shows you the Mac in the same way that when you're on Windows, it would say, you know, download this file. When you're on a Mac, it, it, it only says, you know, download. It, it knows what operating system you're on. So it, it, it only gives you the, the, the Mac option, so to speak. Oh, that's the way the sites have been built. Okay. So, so like if you're looking at, say, Skype or, or even QuickTime yeah. for them and you go download, it knows from your, from your browser settings. Yeah, that, that's, okay. that's the site that have coded yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's not actually the, the, the Mac itself. No, I'm not even choosing download. I'm just going to like, I'm looking at, at, at just the general page and it, it's only giving me the option to to download uh, the Mac version. Yeah, and like, it talks only it. about the Mac version. No, that's that's the site that have done that deliberately. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, they're detecting so that from that's your... Not, that's not the OS. That, that's, no. Okay. No, well, it's linked in with the OS in that your browser tells the website what OS you're running. Sure, That's, sure. Yeah, okay. but it, it's yeah. the site have chosen to do that. They they could have chosen not to do that. And uh, there are some sites that actually are, are not like what you've described. And you go on a Mac and it all talks about the EXE, even though they do do a, a Mac version and you have to kind of hunt for it. And there'll be a little uh, link down yeah, the bottom going cool. Mac version here. Yeah. And uh, now number three on the list was apparently choosing the wrong distribution. Yes, especially for a newbie. Yeah, yeah. There oh, are some God, distributions yeah. which are with? brilliant, yeah. but if you're not a newbie, you're going to have a hell of a hard time I'm using it. Gintu, Slackware, Fedora, I mean, which, you know, Ubuntu? Well, Ubuntu is a lot more user-friendly, especially if you go for the current noobs, yeah. Yeah, I was yeah. just saying that, well, that's what I mean, though. Which one do you, you see the list, which one do you pick? And uh, I know a lot exactly. of people would say you, Ubuntu, absolutely. You ask your resident geek and they tell you. Yeah, that's what you do. <laughs> or you do a little bit of a web search before you choose what you what Linux installation to install. But actually, if you're as doing the, it yourself. Well, as the article said, a lot of people do just blindly recommend Ubuntu for new users. But I have, and I have uh, seen this mentioned that it's it's actually not necessarily the easiest to use. There are some some distributions that are designed exactly for people using Linux for the first time. Yeah, and it's supposed, yeah. supposedly a lot, a uh, lot easier. Number four on the list was not finding software. I guess we've all seen Linux people trying to, sorry, newbies to Linux trying to find software and failing miserably. Well, that will be once again part of that 
not knowing the difference between what they're using now and what they had used previously, Windows or Mac, and how if you were using a Windows PC previously, the prevalence are and ease of getting software for it. Do a Google search, click the button, download it, run the executable, it installs, bada bing, you're away laughing. Whereas when you're doing that sort of stuff on Linux, there are no, you end up at a, a SourceForge page. You can download the source for it or a pre-confiled version for this Linux kernel or for this distribution or getting to grips with the package tool that comes with your Linux distribution. So I can see it why it's confusing. A, it is a different process for finding the software that you want. And, uh, and it's just all of that stuff we took away when we moved to Windows. Well, when I was in government, there was a huge move amongst the IT community in government to go to Linux on the desktop, and we just couldn't do it from a management perspective because there were no management tools. So all of the stuff that you get in Windows, as much as we complain about it, makes the management of a vast number of uh, PCs really quite simple and straightforward, yeah, yeah. and you just don't have that same thing. So even just for a home PC, uh, you know, you wouldn't be wanting to give it to your average noob user. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. What about sending open office documents to Microsoft Office users in the default format? Because <laughs> I don't know, you know, you use you get open office with your Linux distro, it's there, and you use it, and you have no idea. You send these documents off, and lo yep. and behold, your Windows users just can't see them. Well, I think this is a problem amongst uh, Microsoft Office users themselves. Because you will get people who are using Office 2007 who are saving stuff in the default Office 2007 format, sending them off to people who are on different versions of Microsoft Office who may or may not have the converters installed who cannot open what it is that you're doing. Or you send it off to somebody who is using a Mac or who's using a Unix machine with Open Office. And yeah, there's no cross-compatibility there. Absolutely. As you said, it's not restricted to Linux new- newbies, but uh, that's definitely a trap. What about number six, avoiding the command line? You can't always. <laughs> well, it you know, is. <laughs> this is a tricky one. It is a tricky one. With the prevalence of, um, you know, the change from Windows from when it was DOS to 3.1 to actually this fully Windows environment, we got rid of the command line. And people are used to being able to point and click. Well, we didn't get rid of it, but we got the, rid of the need to use it. Yeah, we got rid of the well, need. There's still things we use, use it for, you know, so I was in a command shell on Windows only today to do something. But what, we've, what we're doing with all of this, the trouble with Linux is we haven't sufficiently abstracted the complexity away from the user the way that we have spent a lot of time doing that in, on Mac and Windows. And so that, that abstraction hasn't quite gone far enough. So they will, you know, there's every chance they'll have to try and use a command line for something. Mm. But the point of this one here is that the newbie will be avoiding the command line like the plague. Whereas yes. there are things you can do that you can do in the command line so much faster, so much more efficiently than you could using some uh, GUI that's being written that you might have downloaded for it. I, I can I guess what I'm where I'm coming from is I can kind of understand newbies to any operating system for that matter to avoid a command line. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I yeah. live in my command line on my Mac. I do a lot of things in there. It's my yep. second home. But <laughs> uh, I can understand why newbies wouldn't want to go there. Yep. Number seven, giving up too quickly. I've seen that a lot. Yep. <laughs> I've seen that with most everything. <laughs> well, yeah, true. But I, especially with Linux. I mean, I know a lot of people who said, oh, I've tried Linux and it was rubbish. I, I, I scrapped yep. it. Oh, how long ago that, was that? Oh, two days ago. 
And that will be because of the preceding six reasons. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they thought it was Windows. They tried to use executables. They sent documents that nobody else could open. Ah, I'm giving up this. Yeah. I installed it in Ubuntu uh, and it, it was great. It, it was fantastic. I used the command line. I sent open office documents in the right format. I did everything right, except uh, I imported an iPhone from the US when they first launched and I needed iTunes. <laughs> so oh, I, I yeah. had to go back. I had to go back. There's nothing I could do. What about wine? Uh, no, no, not 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 for. Oh no, uh, uh, not for iPhone. Uh, yeah, syncing and yeah, because yeah, it not, uses uh, yeah. yeah low level stuff. So, what about number eight? Thinking the Windows directory hierarchy translates to Linux. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's that? just RTFM, isn't it? Indeed, I think so. But they expect to see program files. You know, that exact same thing. (laughs) Being a bit harsh. (laughs) No, no, I think um, most of these uh, newbie problems are all about the fact that newbies uh, don't read the manual. And they expect everything to work the same way. And most of them would definitely not know what the man is. No, they wouldn't know how to go man something. (laughs) Let alone going man man to find out how to use man. Yeah, exactly. Number nine, skipping updates. Yeah, uh, well, I think that applies to anything. You be to anything. What updates? Who, what? Are you supposed to update things? Yeah, unless it runs automatically, which if you were setting up something for a newbie, you would make as many automated update processes yeah. as possible because newbies just don't, even on Windows. I, I am constantly telling people, have you updated? They come up with a problem. Have you updated? <laughs> yeah, it's the first thing you ask them, isn't it? In, well, that in, in is several it turned cases. on. Yeah, is <laughs> yeah, it turned on? They never do. Turned it off they and on again. <laughs> what about number 10, logging in as root? This is when they start getting a little bit more, you know. A little more savvy as to Yeah, enough happen. to know enough to be dangerous kind of thing. Yep. Only uh, if they've got an image of the machine as it was before they did it. <laughs> That's the only time you'd ever let them log in as root. <laughs> but people oh, do, I don't they? they? I've seen people who, who've got Linux at home on their home computer and they'll log in as root. I think they feel, I don't know, more powerful or something. Yeah, well, when you are logged in as root, you do have the ability to use the one command simply to do it instead of having to, you know, type sudo all the time. But yeah, it's, it's not good security-wise. No. But I, I, yeah, I fall for that all the time. On my own box, my Ubuntu box here at home, I log in as root. <laughs> oh, do you? Yeah, yeah. I have a user, but if I'm doing stuff on it, it's generally I'm playing around with bits and pieces. Oh, with so the, with the I just OS log and, straight in as root, right. yeah. Right, so you're not just doing like <laughs> documents and surfing and stuff? No, no, I have a perfectly wonderful Windows 7 machine for that. I started out my IT career on Unix as a sysadmin, so I'm comfortable as root, but that was a long time ago. So, you know, but you don't want a newbie in there with godlike powers any more than you, you know, you want them using their admin login. Exactly. You don't on want the Windows machine. Because they can destroy <laughs> things. As someone did on one of my servers many years ago, did an RM minus R from root. Oh, root, ouch. You know, as root. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's bad. I'll tell you what I really like about the Mac OS is that they've got this guest account that you can enable. So if you've got like people staying with you and they say, oh, can I borrow, you know, the net, I want to do my banking or whatever it is, you give them this guest account knowing that they're not going to trash it. They're not going to leave trails of stuff in your history or in you know, cookies or anything like that. 
they can't change settings. And if they do, it's only for that account. And when they log out, it all gets reset. It's a really, really nice feature that. Have you used that, uh, Cameron, at all? No, I was about to ask you, how do I do that? Because that would be great. Because um, my wife is a newbie in every sense of the word. So I'd love her to just be able to jump on my um, Mac and do stuff and not leave stuff everywhere. Uh, so yeah, I'll, I'll ask about that. Just for your information, if you go to the system preferences under accounts, you yeah. should be able to, uh, I think you'll see a guest account appear in the list. Uh, sorry, I'm there now. And guest account, wow. Yeah, if you oh. click on that, you've got to tick the box. So you, so you select it and tick the box, yep. allow guests yep. to log into this computer. It's actually really, really good because uh, oh, you know right. it, it cleans up all the history as well in the browser. So you know and they know, if you tell them, that there's no trace of you know the online banking or whatever they've done. And uh, if they if they the, the only catch is of course is if they it's not a permanent account so if they save stuff it's going to get deleted right okay so if you yeah, want cool. if you want them to have a proper account you create them an account this is simply for literally a guest where they come and they do something and everything gets blown away okay cool yeah okay that's great cool that's yeah, a brilliant feature it is a good feature okay so uh, number eleven of twelve is losing Windows to the pager <laughs> where did that window go. <laughs> Yeah, I remember. I remember doing that when I was first learning how to use Linux back in the days at university. Moving my IRC window somewhere and flicking back and going, "Where the hell is it?" Then having to <laughs> alt through all of the different Windows combinations to <laughs> find the console that's got my IRC window on it. Well, if you're if you're Windows centric, the idea of virtual desktops is completely foreign to you. It's not something that Windows has really pushed. Even if you can, you know, if you can do it, it's it's not something that people do. Ignoring security because it's Linux, number 12. I mean, who hasn't heard of the Linux guy saying, oh, I don't need antivirus, I don't need anything because I run Linux? Yeah, I run Linux. Nobody can nobody can um, do anything. If I, if I download and run anything, it's going to be perfectly fine. I mean, Mac users but. say the same thing. Oh, yeah, 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 but, but we I know do. that's not true. <laughs> but we know it's not. But it's it's when you get enough volume out there to be worth hacking that you start to get it. And I think Linux, Macs are definitely there now because my brother got uh, an a Trojan on his Mac recently, and he's like, "What do you mean I have to put security software on it?" And Steve, I, Steve I, told me I don't have to. Yeah, yeah. That's apparently he didn't believe me when I said to put. Uh, antivirus on it. Anyway, he has now. But um, I think Linux is getting to that point where it's getting big enough to bother with. Mm. And especially if it's connecting to anything interesting. Then it could be a a potential target. And the -hmm. fact that by default, depending on what installation you've chosen, it will be running a number of different services that are not needed that are potential entry points for a, a knowledgeable hacker. Especially if it hasn't been updated. Yeah. And actually, the, the thought of a, a, a novice trying to set up Linux security just is, is yeah. entertaining. That boggles the mind. <laughs> that could be a whole new show. Uh. <laughs> and on that note, folks, I think that's pretty much it. That's been a bumper episode. I think we're done. Cool. What do you Excellent. think? <laughs> Kate, I'd like to thank you very much for joining us this week. It's been a blast. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. Great, you're more than welcome. And Cameron, it's nice to have you back as well. Fantastic, yeah, it's been cool. Uh, as our unofficial Australian correspondent. <laughs> you, you can make it official if you want. <laughs> All right, sign here. 
All right, Brett, thank you very much again uh, for co-hosting the show with me as per usual. Always a pleasure, Edwin. All right, thank you very much, everyone. See you all again next week. Till then, take care. Bye-bye.